name, that you would meet with us, that you would inhabit the praises of your people, that your Holy Spirit, God himself, would change us. We pray that you would soften our hearts. Lord, in any area of our hearts and our souls right now where there's any hardness, Father, would you just draw close and melt it? Just take it away. Unforgiveness, bitterness, anxiety, fear, the need to feel like we have to control. Whatever the hardness might be, God, would you just come near and just take it? We can't save ourselves. We can't change ourselves. Father, you know this. So would you please come this morning and just do what only you can do? We do love you. God, we, we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. And so, Lord, from you and to you and through you and for you are all things, all things. So have all the glory today. And, Lord, the joy will be all ours that we have the privilege of worshiping you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, grab them. And you can literally open them to wherever you wish this morning. Uh, we are, usually I tell you the passage we're going to be in. Um, however, we are starting a, uh, a series today that's going to, we're going to spend most of the summer in this uh, on our doctrinal statement. Um, and so we're going to be pulling from all over the Bible. Uh, if you guys, you, you feel free to get up and get one if you want. If you didn't get one, there were papers that should have been handed out this morning with your bulletin. Um, that with a front and back full page with some, our doctrinal statement at the top of the front uh, and then some historic creeds and then a bunch of verses on the back. Um, we are going to be spending some time uh, over the next couple months just kind of doing what might be considered a little bit more of like a systematic theology study, again, on some different uh, aspects of God's nature and character as well as what the Bible says about man, about salvation about the last things, uh, and uh, it's important. It's important to know. Um, I want to preface not just this message this morning, but also a little bit of a preface and introduction to this entire series that we're going to be doing this summer. Um, and just saying this, and that what this is ultimately about is not head knowledge. It is ultimately about worship. It's about worship. Um, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, and if you are one of the people that actually reads your bulletin, uh, from day one, our mission statement has been right on the front there, and it says that our mission here is to help every person continually worship Jesus. We believe that that's what you were created to, to do. You might not even know that, but we believe that every human being was created to worship Jesus, and because of our sin, what, the essence of what sin is, is that we have all decided to, by nature and choice, worship other things instead. It's called idolatry. And <clears throat> we believe that um, it is our joy and privilege not just to be saved from the sin of idolatry and all the destruction that it brings, but that we are saved for and saved to worship our Creator, God, uh, and Jesus Christ, His Son. Um, and so this is ultimately about worship. Uh, in John chapter 4, uh, Jesus speaking with the woman at the well, somewhat of a familiar passage. 
The woman says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And, and this morning, as we're going to be looking specifically at the doctrine of the Trinity, um, I, I want to say up front that this is probably uh, one of the more incomprehensible doctrines. And yet, by, when I say incomprehensible, it's not that we can't understand it at all. And yet, we have to allow the Bible to give us categories to believe what is true and not bring our categories to the Bible and try to fit them into it. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are people that sit under the authority of the word. And so we allow the word to give us the categories we need to understand our incomprehensible on some levels. Um, eternal God, that, that is infinite. And while there are certain things that are hard for us to grasp, um, there is a lot that we can know about him, and that's ultimately why his word is given to us, that we might know him as he is, so that we might worship him as he deserves. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. God has created us as human beings, body, soul, and spirit. If For those of us that have been born again by the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit now lives in us, so we can interact with him, we can have a relationship with him, we can worship him in spirit, as it says, but then also in truth. That in order to worship him uh, as Jesus describes here, to be those worshipers that the Father seeks, the true worshipers, must worship not only in spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in our spirit, but also in truth. We must worship him as he is. We don't get to make a God in our own image. We worship God for who he is, as he is, as he has revealed himself in Scripture. And what we're going to look at today is that he has revealed himself as Trinity, as a Trinity, as a three and one, and we'll unpack a little bit all of what that means. Um, if I was, uh, quote unquote, praising Hannah, telling her how beautiful she is, and I do that frequently because she is, um, but it would be weird if I would say, sweetie, you are so beautiful, and I just love your dark hair and your brown eyes. Now, the reason that would be weird is she's more of a blonde, and her eyes are blue or green-ish, depending on what color shirt she's wearing. They kind of change a little bit. And so I could, say, I could give her the compliment of, I love your dark hair and your dark eyes, but that's not worshiping her according to the truth, right? In the same way, we must worship God as he is. Otherwise, we're speaking about somebody else, and it's weird. <laughs> and one of the things, that, again, that ways that God has revealed himself in the scripture is that he's a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's many times in these weightier, big doctrines that are hard to wrap our minds around that we have even more of a tendency to try to bring God down to our level and to try to create a God in our own image. Just one more place, just to press this point before we get into the actual doctrine of the trinity, is that when God was bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt, one of the things that gets missed oftentimes is, yes, he was delivering them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. In Egypt. He was saving them from that, but, was, but he was saving them to or for 
worship. And over and over again in Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 13, chapter 10, verse 3, when Moses would go in and speak to Pharaoh, he would say, God says, thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they may come worship me. That they may come worship me. They were saved out of bondage, out of slavery, but for or to worship. And here's what happens, is they come out to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And again, it, it's just more proof that we are worshipers. We can't not worship. It's just a matter of whether or not we're going to worship the one true and living God, who's the only one worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship. But they come out, and as Moses is up on the mountain, um, the people are down below making the golden calf. Let me just read this quickly. Uh, Exodus chapter 32 Verse 1 says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to them, up, make for us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the the rings of gold and the that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods. Now that's a Hebrew word, Elohim, and this is kind of important. It's kind of a general word for God, but it does refer at times to the God of the Bible. He says, these are your gods, O Israel. So he points to this golden calf, Aaron does, after fashioning this thing. And he says, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And in our English translations, most of our English translations, that word Lord, where he says tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord, it's probably in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Because that is, because in the Hebrew, it is the word Yahweh. It's the word Yahweh. So I want you to grasp for a second what Aaron is doing. He, he makes this golden calf that it says he fashioned. He made it himself. And he's, first of all, he says, here are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But then he calls the God Yahweh, which is the most holy of all God's names. It's the, the personal name for God as God chose to reveal himself. Do you see what he did? This is what we've been talking about for those of you that call Mercy Hill home over the last couple of weeks is that there's a different Jesus that's being preached today. They still call him Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a Jesus that man has made in his own image. We call him Yahweh, but it's not really. And so again, I, I say all that just as kind of intro, not just to this morning, but to this entire series that we're going to be doing over the next couple of months that we want to worship the true and living God because that golden calf, they called him Yahweh. That was not Yahweh. Yahweh, the one and only holy God, was up on the mountain with Moses. Fire and lightning and smoke and power. The eternal God. And so let's turn now and let's look at this doctrine of the Trinity and try to just give three simple categories or lanes for us to stay in this morning as we study this. Number one, I'm just going to talk about what it is. Secondly, I'm going to talk about what it isn't. And then lastly, I'm going to talk about why it matters. What it is, what it isn't, and why it matters. First of all, what it is. If you've got this paper here on the front, okay, um, at the top you will see, this is kind of our church doctrinal statement. We've had this uh, since the time we started the church in bold at the top. Let me just read that. 
says, we believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are completely separate persons, yet completely one in being. And then parentheses, in substance or in essence, and I'll explain that in a little bit. And they are equal as members of the Godhead. They never had a beginning and they will never have an end. It is in looking to them that we see the perfect example of community and oneness, okay? And so if you're picking up what we're laying down there, okay, in that statement, is that there are some things that to our natural minds don't go together and yet that the Bible clearly teaches. It's that they are completely one, yet they are completely also separate and individual persons within the Godhead. Uh, and yet each one of them is not just a part of the whole, but each one of them is holy, truly, fully God. And yet they are also and yet they are also separate. And you'll see here um, in this little handout that you got, and every one of the handouts you're going to be getting for each one of these doctrinal um, categories over the next several weeks, is, it kind of falls into this. Was we have our formal doctrinal statement at the top, and then the next section is kind of a mix of historic creeds, confessions, and quotes. Okay, Creeds, confessions, and quotes. I want to say this up front, hear me, and I'll say this as we go throughout this series, but we don't believe that, the, that our doctrinal statement, nor the creeds, confessions, and quotes are in any way inspired. Okay, We are people that believe that the Word of God alone is inspired, is authoritative. However, throughout history, creeds and confessions have served a very important purpose because the church is constantly drifting away into doctrinal error because ultimately... Um, Satan is out there and he's a deceiver and he's trying to steal, kill, and destroy through the lies that he sows. And so it has always been important for the people of God to be rooted and grounded in the truth and for the church, the people of God, to continually be coming back to the word and being specific and clarifying what it is that they believe that the word actually teaches. Okay? And one of the reasons that I really like and wanted to put this on here in terms of these, these creeds, confessions, and, and uh, quotes from what I like to just call old school good guys um, is that I want you to know up front, like, in terms of what we believe and what you'll hear taught here at Mercy Hill, um, we're not trying to say anything new. You, like, you know that, right? Like, we're not trying to say anything new. Okay, there is nothing new under the sun. When you hear doctrinal or, or quote-unquote biblical teaching that's new and you've never really heard of it before, it should always be a red flag. We are not trying to do anything new. We're trying to preach Jesus Christ and Almighty God and the Holy Spirit as revealed in the Scripture and throughout history, especially for the last 2,000 years um, during the church age as Christ has been building his church, men and women have given their lives for the truth of who God is and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that there is salvation in no other name. And so we're definitely not trying to do anything new, but we're just trying to stand on the shoulders of giants and proclaim the same Jesus that was proclaimed before us, um, and that really came, really lived, really was born of a virgin, really died, and really did rise again, uh, and that we believe is really coming back again someday. Okay? You with me? So, so first of all, what, what, this, what this is, okay? Let me just read through some of these uh, creeds, confessions, and quotes here, and I'll kind of unpack a little bit. The big idea is that each person of the Godhead Father, Son, and Spirit is each truly God, and yet they are also separate. Um, let me read here from the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession uh, was written in 1559, primarily by one guy named Guido de Bray. He was later uh, martyred for his faith and for this truth that he, he wrote here. This is from Article 8 of the Belgic Confession. 
Um, he says, according to this truth and this word of God, we believe in one only God, who is the one single essence in which are three persons. Now let me pause there for a second. You'll see where I, there's the word essence there in the Belgian Confession, and in parentheses, up in our doctrinal statement, it says, yet one being, and then in parentheses, in substance or in essence. The reason we have that is, is throughout history, people have used different terms, but they meant the same thing. When we say being, it's the same thing as when, when in other places in some of these creeds they say substance or essence, okay? So he's saying here, we believe in one only God who is one single essence or substance or being, okay? In which are three persons. In which are three persons. Really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties, okay? Now hang with me here. I know it's a lot of big words, but um, in systematic theology, there are generally two categories in terms of speaking of the nature and character of God. One is his communicable attributes. Those are, and by communicable, it just means things that we can relate to, like love, knowledge, uh, mercy, justice, although we are not perfect in those things like he is, and we get our definition of what those things are from him, um, we can still understand it. There are other, there are other categories in speaking of the nature and character of God that are called his incommunicable attributes meaning things that we have a hard time wrapping our mind around, like his eternality, that he has always existed. He's just always been. He didn't have a start date. He has always existed. We, everything we know has a, has a start date in our little world, but not God. He has always been, and he will always be. His unchangeableness, he does not change at all. His omnipresence, that he is everywhere all the time. These would be some of his incommunicable attributes, okay? So he says here, according to their incommunicable properties, namely, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. The Father is the cause, origin, and beginning of all things visible and invisible. The Son is the word, wisdom, and image of the Father. The Holy Ghost is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, God is not by this distinction divided into three, since the Holy Scriptures teach us that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost each have his personality distinguished by their properties, but in such wise that these three persons are but one only God. Hence then, it is evident that the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Father, and likewise the Holy Ghost is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons thus distinguished are not divided, <laughs> okay, nor intermixed. For the Father hath not assumed the flesh, nor hath the Holy Ghost, but the Son only. The Father hath never been without the Son, or without the Holy Ghost. They have always existed together forever in perfect community from all of eternity past. For they all are three co-eternal and co-essential. There is neither first nor last, for they are all three one in truth, power, in goodness, and in mercy. Okay? Um, go on to the next section from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, the Westminster Confession was written in 1646. It was then formed into a catechism, which just is like a question and answer format uh, to teach people doctrine. By the way, um, kids back in the day in the church, they would memorize these catechisms, okay? Um, and it's a lot. And uh, I've done this from time to time. Uh, with our boys, we haven't really worked on memorizing it, but parents, if you're looking for just a simple little thing to read with your kids at night before they go to bed, uh, maybe depending on their age, um, but just read through 
the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Catechism. Um, there's a lot of good ones. Uh, and it will spur discussion on the nature and character of God. But from the Westminster Larger Catechism, question seven, what is God? Answer, God is spirit, in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Amen? This is a good God. He's really, really big. He's really, really big, which means he's really, really, really worthy of our worship. Question eight, are there more than one gods? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. There you see the word substance again, speaking of his being, that they are one in being, substance or essence, and yet distinguished by their personal properties. Here's a very simple outline. This is from Wayne Grudem, who's a, uh, Wayne Grudem is, is still alive, I believe. Um, but from his systematic theology, this is just very straightforward. He says, we may define the doctrine of the Trinity as follows. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Okay, so we're, we acknowledge that we're putting things together that to our natural minds or anywhere in this earth we might not have a category for, and yet this is the truth of what the scripture teaches. Um, each one of these doctrinal categories as well, we have a, a place at the bottom that um, speaks in regards to, or that we call our affirmations and denials. Let me just explain this briefly. Sometimes, one of the biggest problems in Christianity today is, is what's called syncretism, is that we think as long, and if you call Mercy Hill home, we've been, I've been pushing on this over the last several weeks as we've been in First John and Jude, is that we think we can just, as long as somebody says Jesus, we can just grab what they say and just kind of bring it in, but we cannot syncretize everything. There are certain things that do not go together, okay? And so we wanted to have a section on affirmations and denials, meaning, yes, although we affirm this, that also means by implication that we deny this, okay? And so the affirmations and denials, we affirm that the doctrine of the Trinity is a Christian essential, bearing witness to the ontological. Again, ontology is another word, or that means it's the study of being, okay? So it's also somewhat synonymous with the idea of being or substance or essence, um, we affirm that the doctrine of the Trinity is a Christian essential bearing witness to the ontological reality of the one true God in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of the same substance and perfections. We deny the claim that the Trinity is not an essential doctrine. There are some of these doctrinal points that we will go through over the next several months that if you don't believe them, then I would, and not that this is the ultimate test or not, but that if you don't believe them or confess them to be true, then I would say you're probably not a Christian. Again, we, we have to, when we say that, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the real Christ, the real God, not a made-up one, not one that we've fashioned in our own image. We believe that the doctrine of the Trinity, although this might be some of you, like the first time you're being introduced to it, Okay, and, that, and that's okay. Um, but as, as we explain it, to deny this is to move outside the realm of historic Christianity and what has always been taught in the church. Um, and we believe a, a twisting of the true nature and character of God. 
We deny the claim that the Trinity is not an essential doctrine or that the Trinity can be understood in merely economic or functional categories. I'll explain that more as we go through it. Okay, let's get to the Bible. Amen? Did I fry your brains with all those words? Ontology and essence and substance and being. And If you feel overwhelmed, just take a deep breath. Okay, it's okay. It's okay. All right. I know that it it might be a lot. I'm not expecting you to walk out of here this morning um, grasping all of it. Um, However, we want to grow, guys. I'm still growing. I've been stretched this week, again, as I've been been studying this. Let me just run through these scriptures and give some commentary. First of all, let's start on the Old Testament. Many times it's said that the Trinity is not taught anywhere in the Old Testament, although, to be sure, it is more fully taught. in the New Testament, uh, just like many other things in the Old Testament, um, the shadow of it is there, and the implications of it are there. Uh, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The key there, let us make man in our image. It is absolutely plural. There's more than one that right from the beginning, and this is the Godhead, I believe, speaking to each other, Father, Son, and Spirit, totally one and yet separate, real community within the Godhead in all of eternity past. They decide to make man in their own image out of the overflow of love and joy that they are. Psalm 45, 6 and 7, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil uh, of gladness beyond your companions. The key here is that last sentence, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Um, David is here praising God, and yet he says, God, your God. And again, it's, you're like, how does that work? How can he tell God that he's praising his God? Well, because he's speaking to the Son, but it's somewhat revealed or concealed there in the Old Testament. Psalm 110 is also like this. Psalm 10 verse 1 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, Jesus quotes this verse. Um, This verse is also quoted in the book of Hebrews. Uh, And here again, it's the Lord says to my Lord. So there's more than one Lord, and yet there's like, I thought there's only one God. And so again, you see the shadow of it, that this um, prophetic shadow that there are more than one person in persons in the Godhead. And of course, we understand this more fully in the New Testament when Jesus comes um, and claims to be God. Um, if you will, uh, let's look at the Great Commission here, moving out of the New Testament. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Here, we go and we baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We did this just a couple of weeks ago. If the Holy Spirit were not God, he would not be listed there, along with the Father and with the Son. Also, not on that paper there, but in verse 17, which is right before verse 18, of course, in Matthew uh, Chapter, chapter 28, it says they, Jesus called him to a mountain when he gives him this great commission. And in verse 17 says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. They worshiped him. But some doubted. 
If they had been worshiping someone who was not God, it would have been blasphemous. But Jesus is God. Um, let's go on here. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, last verse of the letter. Again, you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here in, in some functional ways. I'll probably come back to this verse a little bit later. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All three persons of the Trinity at work in our salvation. It's a very beautiful thing. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Same idea um, in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling by his blood. May grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you. And so you see the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification, the setting apart of the Spirit, and the obedience to Jesus Christ. That our salvation was, yes, accomplished by the Trinity, by the one true God. And yet there's an also a dynamic of where this was a team effort. That they all worked together in the joy of bringing people to salvation. And they all deserve to be worshipped. Um, the uh, Gospel of John, uh, verses one through four. This one is not. This one is not on your uh, on your paper, I believe. But um, John chapter one, verses one through four. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Speaking of Jesus, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Little side note here, if you ever debate any Jehovah's Witnesses, they will twist this verse and they will say that in the original Greek it actually says that the word was a God and not God. That is absolutely not true. No Greek scholar, uh, even that is not Christian, has ever um, uh, put their stamp of approval on the fact that that is a legitimate interpretation. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, as more recently, have even admitted that, yet they continue to hold to it, that Jesus was not truly God. Um, but he was, and it's very clear here. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so you see, again, uh, this, this melting together of that they are one in being and yet separate in their persons. Um, let's go, let's do Ephesians. I think it's at the bottom of your paper, Ephesians 1 through 7. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Um, again, you see that part of the unifying uh, 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 effect of the church is that we're unified in the Trinity. The Spirit, the Son, and the Father all working together. Um, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit, one God and Father of all, who's over all, through all, and in all. Probably one of the most pressing places, again, not on your sheet here, but where uh, it makes it evident that the Holy Spirit is God, because that's probably the one, the Holy Spirit is the, is the 
member of the Trinity that it maybe gets questioned the most, uh, even in some quote-unquote uh, Christian circles. Um, but in Acts chapter 5, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, you remember the, the early churches, everybody's selling their property and they're laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet uh, just out of the overflow of love that existed in that early church community. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property. They pretend like they're giving all the money, but they're not. They're keeping some back. They would have been allowed to do that if they'd have just been honest about it, but instead they lie about it. They say that they're giving all, all of the money and they're not. Uh, they did it just to make themselves look good. And Peter says to Ananias in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, it says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now listen, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now listen, you have not lied to man, but to God. So he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, You've not lied to man, but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. Three persons of the Trinity. The Son is God. The Father is God. Um, now, let me go on and talk a little bit about what it isn't, what the Trinity isn't, okay? And this might be helpful because at this point you're like, okay, Eric, you're throwing a bunch at me. Um, I'm trying to follow you, but why... Is it like this or is it like this? Why are you not giving any illustration? Because you guys know that I believe, uh, I believe Jesus taught this way. I, I try in communicating every week to give illustrations of what something is like. I think that's helpful. Here's the deal, though. With the Trinity, if I do that, it's going to be heresy. Because there is no illustration um, in this world from, from nature or from creation that perfectly fits to describe the nature of the Trinity. So what it's not, first of all, it is not polytheism, okay? This is not like Hinduism or Buddhism that, uh, or, or various tribal religions that have more than one God. It is not polytheism. It is also not a strict monotheism, which would be like Islam or Judaism, okay? Now, there's a, there is, uh, throughout church history, um, some places where we would argue, in a sense, we are monotheistic, okay? Uh, and this would be from Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. However, we need another category. We're not strict, strictly monotheistic. We are Trinitarian. Being Trinitarian is something that is uniquely Christian. It is uniquely Christian. Um, and this truth of the Trinity uh, is a distinctive of Christianity and emphasizes the unique glory of our God. It emphasizes the unique glory of our God. We are not just splitting hairs. This is how God has revealed himself in the scripture, and if we are to worship him as he, he deserves, we must worship him as he is. Now, also what it is not. It cannot be understood with analogies from human nature or experience. So for example, you may have heard before that, well, the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. Anybody heard that before? Okay. Not true. I know, again, we, we try, and sometimes we try to explain this to our kids, and it's like, well, it's like this. You just, not, not really. Not really. Okay, with a three-leaf clover, there are three parts, yet it, yet it remains one, clo one clover. Uh, this fails because 
Uh, each leaf is only part of the clover, and any one leaf cannot be said to be the whole clover. So are you understanding? When I say that, that each person of the Trinity is there separate, yet they are one, they are in themselves fully God. They're not just a part of God. They're each fully God, and yet they're totally separate. And in the Trinity, each person is not just a separate part uh, of the God, each is fully God. Uh, and of course, with all these analogies, uh, a clover, like the rest of them, is impersonal and does not have a distinct or complex personality in the way each person of the Trinity does. Uh, the same problem exists with the analogy of a tree, where you have the roots, the trunk, and the branches. Okay, anybody ever heard, heard that one before? Also got to give a thumbs down to that one. Um, with this analogy, uh, different parts have, di have different properties. Okay, so the roots do one thing, the trunk does one thing, the branch does other things. But unlike the persons of the Trinity, all of whom possess all of the attributes of God in equal measure. They're not just performing, they, they do perform some different functions, but they all have the capability to perform any function at any time because they are all, are all fully God. Okay, also with the example of water, ice, and steam, no quantity of water is all three at the same time. Along with this illustration, sometimes the illustration is given of a, of a man who is maybe a farmer uh, by trade, a mayor in his little town, and an elder in his church where he's performing these different functions. Um, this illustration is deficient because uh, it is only one man, okay? And again, within the Trinity, it was real community, real community within the persons of the Godhead in all of eternity past. One man does not have that. Um, and at different times, and of course, uh, it cannot account uh, for this personal interaction amongst the members of the Trinity. And again, they're not just doing different jobs. This is probably, uh, those illustrations of water, ice, and steam, and then the man who might be a farmer, mayor, and elder in his town, this is probably what, what's, clo what's closest to the heretical teaching called modalism. And I mention this because modalism is, is probably one of the teachings about the Trinity that is most easily grafted into the church at large, okay? And it teaches uh, that there's only one God and that he just manifests himself in different places at different times and in different ways. Uh, if you watched the movie or read the book, The Shack, modalism. Okay, um, it, I mean, if you watch the movie, got, I mean, whatever, but I'm just, it's not, it's not accurate to the Bible, let alone the fact that God is not a woman, okay? Um, the Bible goes out of its way to, uh, to make clear, uh, it also, that God is masculine, there are places uh, where it would be fitting in Greek for the article to describe the word spirit with a neuter, uh, with a, a, a neuter article, uh, but the Bible goes out of its way to use a masculine article. Um, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are all assigned masculine, uh, described as masculine um, in the Bible. So, again, I wish that I could give you an illustration that would really encapsulate all that, uh, all that the Trinity is, but I cannot. And so, so I've tried to tell you 
what it isn't and have spent time on this. Um, Lewis Burkhoff, who's a, a good uh, theologian, says the Trinity is a mystery. Man cannot comprehend it and make it intelligible. It is intelligible in some of its relations, but unintelligible in its essential nature. The real difficulty lies in the relation in which the persons in the Godhead stand to the divine essence and to one another. And this is a difficulty which the church cannot remove, but only try to reduce to its proper proportion by a proper definition of terms. It has never tried to explain the mystery of the Trinity, but only sought to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity in such a manner that the errors which endangered it were warded off. We have to embrace some level of mystery um, regarding our finite minds in understanding this doctrine. Okay, now, so we've laid the groundwork of what it is, what it isn't. Now let me tell you why it matters, okay? Um, many times I like to start with the why so that you understand why it's important so that you'll pay attention to the rest of what I have to talk about, but that would, was really hard to do without explaining this first. Um, but let me explain why this matters. Uh, number one, as has already been stated, I won't spend a lot of time on this, this is how God has revealed himself in the scripture and this is how he really is. This is who he is. Our God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we must worship him according to the truth. We sing to Jesus, we sing to the Spirit, we sing to the Father. If the Trinity is not true, then uh, to sing to the Son and to sing to the Spirit uh, is a lie and would be sinful and would be blasphemous. Secondly, the very nature of the atonement of what Christ came to accomplish is absolutely at stake. Let me explain. If Jesus is a created being and not fully God, then he could not bear the full wrath of God against our sin. If God is just appearing, as modalism teaches, in certain modes to where maybe God appears then in the flesh and is, dies on the, cross, on the cross, who is pouring out the wrath upon him? It's not actually happening. But we believe that this is the core of what the Bible teaches about our salvation. That if I was to ask you, that we, if you say that you're saved and I say saved from what? There's a lot of things we could put in there. However, to say all the other things and not mention this would be to not understand the nature of your salvation. That the primary thing, the first thing that you are saved from is the wrath of God. That is what we are saved from. This is what Paul lays out in the book of Romans. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness, that is, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And then he goes on and he says, for the wrath of God is revealed against all mankind. All human beings everywhere is his point. Against all unrighteousness of men who suppress their truth, uh, who suppress the truth, sorry, in unrighteousness. And so it goes to the nature of the atonement and our security that we can have. The guys, Jesus really did pay the price that you can know that you can be made right with God. Because God the Father truly did pour out the punishment that we deserve on him as our substitute in our place, if you will just trust him. If Jesus is not fully God, then can we fully trust him completely? Can we depend on a creature to bring us through to the end? 
Can we believe someone who's not fully God to say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. If Jesus was, crea- was created, uh, then our salvation um, in great measure rests upon a creature rather than on God himself. But we believe that Jesus is God. He is God. And so he's able to fully save us. Go right along with this, another implication of why this matters is that this should give us an unshakable confidence in a comprehensive salvation. An unshakable confidence. That in all of eternity past, I know this is some big idea stuff, but guys, it's not that this does not matter. It's that our hearts are so tiny and we're so concerned with the little thing that's going on in our lives. And again, I'm not talking, I'm not trying to say that anything that's in your life that's causing you pain is tiny or insignificant or that God doesn't care about it. But I'm saying allow the tiny little things that are causing you pain and stress in your life to get swept up into the greatness of our God. If we turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace that in all of eternity past, the Father chose a bride for his Son. This bride is the church. The Son paid a price, a dowry, a bride price for this bride. The price was the price of his own blood. The Spirit is now the one whom is sent from the Father and the Son who seals us, who seals the bride, keeping us, until that glorious day when we will be with the lover of our souls forever. And the reason we can have security in this is because Jesus really was God and only God could bear the wrath of God, yet he was also truly man and took the punishment that we deserved and the Holy Spirit is now here to see us through to the end. We, it's not, we, we don't have some second string junior varsity B team that is now working with us to get us through to glory. God himself is in us. And the work that he began in you, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It, it, this doctrine reminds us not only of what we have been saved from, but also what we have been saved to. That we have been saved into or for, we have been saved into a glorious family, a glorious family. We were saved from our bondage to sin, all who sin are slaves to sin, but whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And we have been saved into a community of love and perfection that, listen, created out of the overflow of his own joy and love that existed within that community of the Godhead in all of eternity past. This is not like a monotheistic God who's just been sitting up there forever by himself and maybe then creates us because he's kind of lonely. God did not create us out of need. He created us out of pleasure. If you hear nothing else I say this morning, hear that. God did not create us out of need. He created us out of pleasure out of the overflow of his own joy and abundance. And he invites us into the joy of this community. You've been saved into a family. You've been saved into a family. And I I can't, this is a 
good time to say this because there's been a lot of things I can't fully <laughs> explain with this this morning, although I'm trying. But, you know, uh, when we're separated from somebody, the separation is more difficult the longer, the longer we've been with that person, right? So, uh, I know Nevin a little bit, and I would really miss Nevin if I'd never seen Nevin again. But I've known Nevin for, what, now, a couple years? Three, four, five years? Three, okay. It would be sad. I just want to make that clear. I would be really sad if I would not see, if I would not see Nevin again. But somebody that I've maybe known and had the same relationship, regular interaction with for 20 years or for 30 years, it would be even harder to lose them because I've known them longer. And on some level, I, I can't, I don't know if I can fully explain this, but God the Son was with God the Father and God the Spirit, not just for three years or 20 years or 30 years, but for all of eternity. For all of eternity. And on some level on the cross although I believe that Jesus never for one millisecond ceased to be God something happened where momentarily Jesus was momentarily separated from the goodness and the love of the Father that he had known for not just 10, 20, 30 years but for all of eternity and even as he lived on this earth he was living in the favor of God but in that moment our sin, the punishment that we deserve, was laid upon him. And the certainty, as certainly as Jesus was rejected, so certainly are we accepted because of what he did, folks. Je Jesus paid a great price we can never fully understand. Um, and We've been, and he did that so that we could be brought into this fellowship that he himself experienced in all of eternity past with the Father and with the Spirit. If I can just, if I can just really try to bring this high and holy doctrine down to the ground and just look you in the eye, if I had, had time to look at everyone in the eye and say this, listen, if you've been born again, you are never alone you are never alone and I'm telling you the more I walk and try to obey the Bible and make disciples and try to be a halfway's decent pastor you know <laughs> um, one of the things that drives people again and again to, to give in to temptation and to practically not walk in victory is as I listen to people although they don't always say these words one of the things that always seems to come up is that in those moments when they give into the darkness is in those moments they're convinced that they're alone they're convinced that they're alone if you can just receive this this morning not you don't got to do anything for it it's gospel it's good news if you've accepted Jesus, this is true, true of you. You are never alone. There is a good, loving Father 
that is watching over you every moment. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. You have a perfect older brother who doesn't pick on you and act mean to you, as older brothers tend to do. Maybe, just saying. He doesn't do that. He stands and he makes intercession for you all the time. You have the Holy Spirit who's not just out there somewhere floating around. He is in you. And you have been sealed with him until the day of redemption. And I'm convinced that if we could live moment by moment in the reality of this family, that not only what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved to into this family, we would walk in victory all the time, wouldn't we? All the time. You don't have to earn this. This is yours. Jesus was a son by grace. I'm sorry, we are sons by grace. But Jesus was a son by nature. And we've been brought into the family because of what he's done. Uh, Not only does this doctrine speak to this community that we've been called into, but it also speaks, and this is my last point here, um, to the nature and the very heart of our mission of what we are called to do. That just as Jesus left heaven and came to earth to bring us into this amazing family of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the same way, if we have known that love and been brought into that family, then all of our lives, every one of us, should exist for this very purpose, to go and to tell others Not only what they can be saved from, but what they can be saved to. And what they can be saved for. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, made room at the Father's table for us. There's always room at the Father's table for all who will simply trust in Jesus. Are we willing to make room at our table? Are we willing to constantly open up our lives, our homes, our church. It's funny, the last time we did a doctrinal series, um, we did do this like year two maybe or something. We were at Newgrounds Cafe and there was just like this many people there at that time. And that's about all that could fit in that little room that we were in. And I, I don't, I, I'm really not trying to be offensive because of this morning, but I, every now and then you hear this, okay? And I've probably said it too, okay? So, We've all said it. Let's just say that. But sometimes I'll hear people say, like, like they'll come to Mercy Hill and they'll be like, well, I just, my other church was too big. Well, there's always going to be room at the table, folks. Like, bigness alone isn't a reason to leave a church. Right? Because there are a lot of people that God wants to save and bring into his family. Amen? And I never want us, we're we're not. In fact, we do an incredible job because, and I say that because I hear testimonies about it all the time. But we want there to always be room. Two different times, I just felt like the Lord personally just kind of speaking this to me from the word this past week. In two different discipleship meetings that I had this past week, Romans chapter 10 came up. Let me just read a little bit of it for you briefly. 
He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. In other words, it doesn't matter what your background is, ethnically or religiously, it doesn't matter. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him, if you will just call upon the name of the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he goes to verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, who, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, do you understand what he's saying? All those who call upon the name of the Lord, that's it. If you just call upon the name of Jesus, you will be saved. But then he asks these rhetorical questions. How then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? The answer is they won't. The next question, and how are they to believe in him, him of whom they have never heard? The answer is, they won't. They have to hear of him. And how are they to hear of him to hear without someone preaching? The answer is, they won't. Someone has to go. Someone has to share. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? The answer is, they won't. Folks, in Christ Jesus, maybe, I, I think you know this, maybe we've just forgotten it. But let me make it clear right now, in the name of Jesus, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you are sent. You are sent. Then it says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And I've used this illustration before, it's not really an illustration, it's the very imagery that, that this verse comes from. But that verse there that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, that is from Isaiah chapter 52, <coughs> verse 7, it says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Here's the imagery is that we get the word gospel, which means good news from the Greek word evangelion, okay? And evangelion in the noun form, it literally was a person that back in the day when there was a battle and there were opposing armies and like, like your, your team or your country or your city is fighting a, another you know, city or country or army or whatever. And here's the deal. Your army's out fighting. You're back in the city. But if the opposing army defeats your army, then you're done for. Because after they defeat your boys, they're coming after you, Right? And so the Evangelion, the, the, the person, was the runner. They were the runner that would, they would go and they would watch the battle. And when there was victory, when your army won the battle, they would come running back across the mountains, across the hills, across the valleys, whatever, proclaiming this message, victory, we won. In other words, we're not going to die. Good news, right? This is the message that we have. What we have is really good news. We don't have to pretend it's good news. We act like we have to pretend it's good news. Like, well, I mean, if you don't, if you've got enough time, like I just have a little something I'd like to share with you. You know, if, if it's convenient. We have good news to proclaim. We don't have to die. Someone has died in our place. It was Jesus. And if you will just 
call upon his name, you can have eternal life. And when you get eternal life, it will change your life in the here and now forever. You will never be the same. This is the message that we have. Is this the message that we are proclaiming? That we have eternal life because we've been called into fellowship with an eternal God who exists three persons in one, can't fully understand it, but it's awesome. Amen? Such good news. The Trinity should shape our mission every day. This is what it's about. Nothing else. Worship to me and come up. There is no one like our God. There is no one like our God. As we close, I just want to ask you this morning, have you been feeling alone? Let me just say it again. You're not. You're not. You are never alone. Being called into a family. Nothing will ever change that. Little Jordy, our little guy that we adopted a couple years ago and that I use as a sermon illustration all the time, his, uh, the reality of his security in our family does not depend on whether or not he believes it. It will change the quality of his existence. Like to be more secure, he'll be more at peace. But him doubting it some days or believing it other days, it does not change the fact that it's not going to change. He's going to be our son forever. In the same way, I just, if you will just believe again, You've been called into this family, and it's not going to change. He loves you, and he's going to see you through to the end. Father, thanks for being good to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. Give us hearts that are big, that can receive all of your bigness, all of your greatness, all of your kindness, all of your love. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, I pray that we would be compelled by the love of Christ to go and to proclaim that our feet, that our feet would be those beautiful feet running on the mountains and across the world to tell people about this love, this love that you, you have shown to us. Forgive us where we've made it about something else. Forgive us where we've made this just an academic exercise. And Father, I pray for those this week that have been struggling with feeling lonely. I pray in the name of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus Christ that this week, if that temptation comes and if the devil whispers in their ear that they are all alone and that nobody cares, I pray that the eternal weight of your glory would just come upon them and wash that all away. Thank you for loving us. It is truly our privilege to worship you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys stand with me.